2: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. It's exciting to be here uh, with you all today with uh, Patricia and our special guest, who I'll be introducing. Her name is Rachel, and she's a PhD student in the Social Sciences and Comparative Education Division at UCLA's School of Education and Information Studies. She has worked closely with immigrant and undocumented youth in several regions, including California, Massachusetts, and Washington, DC. She has also worked in the higher education sector for Harvard's Graduate School of Education, Mass Bay Community College, Bunker Hill Community College, Achieving the Dream, My Undocumented Life, the Scholars Project, and Jobs for the Future. She received her master's in higher education from Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and her bachelor's in philosophy from the University of Chicago. Her current position is being a PhD student, candidate, and almost done. And her pronouns are she, her, hers. And so let's
3: get started. Um, Rachel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I was (laughs) really excited to be invited to be part of your podcast and just listening to some of your episodes have learned so much from other folks. So I'm just really excited to be in community with you all and to be part yeah. of this space. So thank you. Yeah, of
2: course. Thank you for for giving us a little bit of your time to share about your experience. And so first of all, for our listeners, um, could you share
3: how we how we met Yes. Um, I was trying to think about this the other day because I realized we haven't actually met in person yet, Ariana, which blows my mind, but I guess happens frequently in these kind of spaces. But I think how we met was when I was a master's student at Harvard, I met our mutual friend, Diana mm-hmm. through some friends there. And then I reconnected with her recently and she was telling me she wanted to learn how to do research, um, just have more opportunities to do research projects with undocumented students. So I was like, oh, that works out really well because I've had this project that I was debating whether I wanna move forward with it or not. So this is exciting, let's let's do it. And then she told me about you and how you wanted to join our team as well. And so then that's how we met. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's true. You're, you, make a, uh, you bring a good point that we met um virtually because I was still in Boston, I think it was like fall 2019 and then the pandemic hit. so we definitely stayed remote. but yeah, yeah
3: it's, it's but now fun. that you're at Riverside, I'll have to drive out there sometime and come finally be. give you a hug. Yes.
0: <laughs> After listening to your bio and kind of everything that you've been involved in, can you tell us more about your background and your upbringing? Um, kind of like what, Where's home and what brought you to um,
3: the work that you do now? So when folks ask me this question, I'm always like, how much time do you have? Because I've had such a long meandering journey into where I am now. But so I'm originally from Washington, D.C., uh, right outside the city in Maryland is where I grew up. Um, My background, I mean... I come from a pretty privileged background. You know, I grew up in like a middle class, upper middle class kind of neighborhood in BC, And my family, um, my mom's side of the family is Jewish. So we definitely have a background of my ancestors being refugees from all over um, Eastern Europe and Russia and Ukraine, actually, which has been really sad and kind of trippy to realize that my great-grandmother is actually from Ukraine. She was a refugee from there, so just tracking what's happening there and thinking about how we're actually from there has been kind of a wild uh, processing experience, just thinking about assimilation and how far removed I feel from that part of the world now. Um, And then, yeah, so I... When I graduated from college, I went to college in Chicago, I was very lost. I majored in something that I ended up not really liking that much. And so I was definitely in a place where I needed to figure out what am I passionate about? And I moved to San Francisco because I was just learning that I was queer. I figured this out like towards the end of college. And I went to visit and I just saw rainbow flags everywhere. And I was like, something about this city feels like I need to come here. So I lived there for a couple of years, and that's when I learned about community organizing. And I got really excited about how the communities I was friends with were organizing spaces for themselves. And um, that really introduced me to the idea of community organizing, especially with immigrant communities. And so I got excited about, can I somehow make this a career? Um so at the time I was working with um I was working in a violin store because the recession had just hit and there were like no jobs for anybody. So I felt grateful to at least have a job even though it wasn't something I was excited about for my career, but then on the side I was looking for opportunities to just volunteer. So I went through like a more kind of formal nonprofit that introduced me to this family. They were, they came through refugee resettlement programs from Bhutan through Nepal and had just arrived in Oakland, like a couple months before I met them. And so the organization introduced us, but then from there, I really learned more about the community and organizations that they were making for themselves. They were founding nonprofits and just doing a lot of amazing community organizing for like elderly folks in their community who felt really isolated and then for the kids to keep up with learning Nepali language and I was just so inspired by everything that they were doing and they were like come to our parties come to our fundraisers and so I was just hanging out with them a lot and telling them I wonder if I should try to you know get some sort of job doing this and they were like do it find a job you know (laughs) Um, so that was kind of the beginning of being interested in this kind of work. Um, and then from there, I I actually, I, I taught English for a couple of years in Okinawa in Japan in a couple of high schools there. And that's when I learned I love working with youth. And then when I came back to DC, I started working with uh, immigrant youth in DC public schools. It was all volunteer things. And a lot of the youth through that program were undocumented and talking to me about I don't know how to go to high school or sorry I don't know how to go to college the policies in DC were really restrictive at the time and so I kind of put things together and I don't know I've been considering so many different things should I go to film school and learn how to make documentaries should I do international relations like I was still very lost in terms of my career but Working with those youth in D.C. was really formative for me that I want to go into education. And so then that's when I really got more focused and went and did my master's program in education and came to do my Ph.D. in UCLA.
2: That's amazing, Rachel. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really cool. And so along those lines, what have been your favorite educational or professional experiences?
3: Yeah, I think my favorite one was the one I was just mentioning working with youth in D.C. There was this group of high school students. They were part of this community-based organization um, that was in a local church in the area in D.C., and they were training them how to be activists and advocates, particularly around language rights. Um, A lot of them were English language learners and just learning about the policies in D.C. public schools and how to advocate to have those policies change. So I love this group of youth. Um, I think something I love from about them was they were they were from all different places and just seeing them kind of navigate that cultural difference to get to know each other because they were from all different kinds of countries in Asia like China and Vietnam and um and then El Salvador and Mexico and Cameroon and they were all just really good friends with each other and I would just spend a lot of time just hanging out with them and learning about what they were doing and they like formed a band where they would rap about their experiences and they'd probably be so embarrassed now because this was like 10 years ago when they were doing this if they knew I was sharing this but um yeah, so we just stayed in touch, and every time I would go back to D.C. to visit them, to visit my family in D.C., I would see them, and they're just really good friends of mine now, and they're still really good friends with each other, and they've gone on to do this such incredible things, um, mostly in community organizing, so uh, that's been one of my favorite things that I've done, was just spending time with them, and still knowing them and having them be some of my closest friends.
2: Awesome. Thank you for sharing. So, okay. So now we have a little context and I'm curious, uh, for example, why did you choose UCLA? And, um, it's a two, like threefold question. Like what about the program attracted you and like, were there other institutions that you were considering?
3: Yeah. So when I did my master's program at Harvard, I did a, Higher education administration program. And when I started that program, I really didn't know very much at all about social science research. Um, when I was an undergrad, I had studied philosophy and we were learning like ancient philosophers. So I was very far removed from how do you think about like communities today? And that was one of the reasons I was kind of disillusioned coming out of college. Cause I was like, I want to learn about that. Um, and so in my master's program, I really learned more about research. Um, and I really liked it. I learned particularly about qualitative research. I was mostly just storytelling. And I was really excited about that aspect of research. And a lot of my mentors at the time were like, you got to get a doctorate. <laughs> Everybody was just telling me, you got to get a doctorate if you want to not run into ceilings in your career. So that was kind of the messaging I was getting. And so then I decided I was excited about applying for a PhD program. Um, It was really hard to decide where to go because I knew I was interested in learning more about the educational journeys and just the policies that affect immigrant students' um, journeys and then what can be done to change those policies so they're not so restrictive And what are students doing to organize, to change those policies and just build more programs for themselves in college? And I knew that's what I wanted to learn more about, but it was interesting that I didn't find that many professors in education schools on the East Coast who were studying that. I think a lot of professors were specializing more in language and literacy programs which is also very important but it wasn't quite what I was interested in and I wanted to stay on the east coast because I'm really close with all four of my grandparents um, they were all still alive at the time and I am really close with them because I'd lived all over the place and in the bay area in Japan like I just really missed them so when I was in Boston I was able to see them more often and, and that was really nice so I was only really looking at programs on the East Coast. So I applied to Harvard, where I had been, and then UPenn and um, NYU. And then at the time, someone was like, you should really look at UCLA. And I was like, UCLA, like, (laughs) that's on the other side of the country. I've lived in California. Like, I love California, but I'm trying to be close to my grandparents. But I was like, let me, let me look this up. Let me check it out. And when I looked into what the re- uh, what the professors study at UCLA, I remember just describing it as like, I felt like I looked into a treasure box because I hadn't found that at other schools. It's just like the list of things that the professors were interested in was just exactly what I was excited about. You know, it's like action research, youth Uh, participatory action research like culture and critical race theory and ethnic studies and migration and I'm like you know it's just so I realized I had to apply and then it just kind of worked out that it was the only place I got into so it made that decision easy of okay if I'm going to do a PhD program I got to go out to UCLA so I came out here I didn't I had a couple cousins here but other than that, I didn't know anybody, so it's kind of a big decision personally. Decide to come out here, but I came for the weekend when they had admitted students' weekend. I saw the beach and I saw the palm trees, and I was like, you know what? I can be happy here. You know, I'll I'll make it work out here. So that was why I decided to come out to UCLA.
0: It's interesting how you're um, kind of describing the graduate school like search process and application process how so many of us kind of start first looking at geographically which schools are close to us um and then what are some things that we personally value but then once you kind of expand that search of like ultimately looking at your research interest and finding out that a lot of schools don't have that good fit um that you end up kind of expanding out to places that you've never would have thought about, and that sometimes um, that fit is so critical in being able to get accepted. As you mentioned that UCLA was the one that you least wanted and ended up being the one that accepted you out of all the other schools that you thought about. Um, so it's kind of interesting how life kind of turns out that way. Um, so was the UCLA program ultimately what you thought it would be now that you've been in the program for, for some time?
3: yeah and also I think you know having looked at all those programs even though UCLA was kind of the hardest for me personally I think from a career perspective it was likely the best place for me to end up um it I think when I came in I didn't know what to expect so it's hard to say like did it pan out as what I expected um Yeah, I think I was hoping the program would take me about five years, and so when I got there, because I had moved around so much in my 20s, I was just telling everybody I was so excited I had a five-year plan, you know, because everybody asks you, what's your five-year plan? Um, And yeah, I think every year going through the program, I'm in my sixth year now, and I'm getting ready to graduate in June, which is really exciting. Every year was different, kind of brought a new experience, just different opportunities, different challenges. And I'm such a different person now than I was when I first started just because I've learned so much and grown so much. So it's hard to say if it's what I expected. I think in some ways I got more out of it than I was hoping. And in other ways things were harder than I was expecting.
2: Now, yeah, if you, I, I can relate to that experience, like every year is different, <laughs> you get thrown different things, so it's hard to pinpoint. Um, but with that, with that um, one of the questions um, that I think we don't really talk about often in academia is like, how can we be in community with our research projects? And with that, how have you dealt with the strain that academia puts on on us not to do that.
3: Yeah, this is something that I was excited to talk to you about with the podcast. Cause since my background had been just hanging out in activist spaces and asking, what can I do to be helpful? Like my whole orientation to everything was, it was very community minded. And like, if you're gonna go in any direction, you bring folks with you who wanna go there too. Um, And at the same time, like, ask folks in other spaces, like, what can I do that would be helpful to you? So this was my whole orientation to how to to do my work. And so when I came into the program, I had heard from different folks that it's possible to have a dissertation that's community-minded like that. Like, they'll call it um, different names, but one is, like, Youth Participatory Action Research, where you'll work with youth and youth are your co-researchers and you worked on a research project together. And that was always kind of what I had in mind that I would wanna do. So when you go through these different steps of defending your dissertation proposal and then defending your dissertation, I always had in mind that I would be in those spaces with youth or students or my friends who wanted to work on these projects together and that we would go through this whole process Together, and that was just my assumption about what a dissertation could be. And it was really interesting to come in and learn, like, oh no, like that's not considered. A lot of folks don't consider that serious research, which is, you know, just like old traditional values of what research is. And I do have friends who are able to make this happen, where they did um, community research projects for their dissertation. But my advisor and my committee were a little bit nervous about it they wanted it to be more of a solo project because they said that a dissertation is really you proving that you yourself can do this that you can write the whole thing that you can do the research and they were very supportive I pushed back and I was like no this is never what I wanted I, I don't even understand what that means to do it by myself like I, I can't do that Um, It's just not what I want and they were very supportive and trying to think about ways that I could frame it that I could still work with because I had a group of three undergraduate students who we were going to do this project together and um, they were supportive about I should frame them as my quote unquote advisory board, but that they wouldn't actually be part of my dissertation and then that way I could still do my dissertation on my own. It was kind of a back and forth. And I was just realizing like, Ugh, I'm not really going to be able to do what I thought I could do. Um, so I kind of had to move forward with my dissertation being more like a solo project, but then I'm hoping to use uh, my dissertation to then work with other folks to write articles or short research briefs that would be interesting to students and work on those kind of projects together but it's definitely something I learned about academia that even goes past a dissertation like I've learned that with journal articles there's this high emphasis that you're have articles where you're a solo author because they say that if you write it with other people they can't see like what's your writing and There just isn't really that value for collaboration. They need to see that you're able to do this on your own and that you've solo authored at least a couple of articles. So it's just, it keeps going, this whole idea of working solo. And I just think it's interesting. And I have mentors and friends who are really pushing back, like, why isn't there more value for showing that you can collaborate? Um, So it's something I've been learning about and navigating
0: And it's interesting because like, even within the whole dissertation phase or any publication or anything, you always have some sort of mentor or advisor. So you like technically aren't doing all of this all by yourself. There's still some people that have to vet through the idea that um, tons of people to get to the final product, which would be your publication. When you were talking about like those people or how like research is or what academia deems important. It's interesting how you mentioned this is like you as a student, right? This is what you've been experiencing, but then when you actually find those people who are done and they are starting getting positions um, in different places in higher ed, I have this one person that I'm working with at work where um, she only emphasizes research. And I'm kind of like you, where I'm used to like doing more of like organizing and just getting things done and like putting together some sort of community project or effort. And this person is doing like so much emphasis on this research that this research that, that they forget that a lot of the stuff that you do practice wise is you just kind of figuring it out and knowing that there may be some research that can back up certain things, but at work, you have to kind of create your own research of like what works and what doesn't work. Um, that is not necessarily the formalized process of research, but it's like, you gather in testimonies and work and you see what has worked, what hasn't, but you kind of have to be more flexible within your data. And it's a team effort work. And that's why so many folks who end up getting positions in admin have such a hard time working with us folks who don't really put so much emphasis on empirical data. Because we've come to realize that when you actually work with a student and research is so outdated by the time that you meet with the student, that there's so many sociopolitical moves that around that time frame, in real time, it becomes different. So that's why a lot of folks currently having such a hard time knowing how to address COVID and these sociopolitical climate that we have because they're like waiting on research. While I'm like, you could still use a lot of things just like your own knowledge or practice, still be able to move forward to make decisions. Um, if you knew how... Um, any marginalization how it works you have an idea of like at least a foundation of how to work with certain difficulties in your um, student retention or graduation or anything like that you you would know how to pivot because a lot of this marginalization is the same but just the context might be slightly different so can you speak on like in terms of your experience in academia and like how you've you're, you seem like you're like a research practitioner more than just a researcher or just a practitioner, right?
3: Yeah, I know there's all these different titles of like researcher, practitioner, there's researcher, like scholar, activist. <laughs> I have friends who really embrace these different titles, um, which I think is amazing that they do that. And I've just been thinking for myself, um what would it be that I would want to take on? Because that might be exciting to have that kind of identity. Um, I mean, I've also heard that the pushback is that you don't get taken as seriously as a pure researcher when you take on those identities, which of course is like a very white patriarchal pushback. So I'd love it when my friends are like, no, I'm not going to worry about that pushback. I'm just going to own these identities. But I think if I were to take one on, it would probably be the scholar, activist, maybe practitioner in there as well um, identity because I was never interested in research for just a purely scholarly world. I was always interested in how can it be used to be helpful to all different kinds of folks, students, practitioners, in a way that just can be useful to folks who are really trying to make change in other people's lives. You'll eventually find one that encompasses what
2: you're trying to do. I think you have you have time <laughs> to develop that. So I guess with regards to, because, um, with regards to your research and um, academic experience, what was it like to build a relationship with your faculty advisor?
3: Yeah, this is um, such an important question. Um, So my advisor, his name is Dr. Robert Tarneschi. I think that overall he's been really supportive of kind of the non-traditional things that i wanted to do and um, uh, we, I came into the program, he had a fellowship for me with the understanding that i worked on various projects with him. And those opportunities were amazing, uh, cause he had a grant from the Ford Foundation and, you know, I had been used to working in spaces where someone who's my boss or boss like figure was gave me very detailed instructions of this is what I want you to do and don't deviate from that and then when I met Rob Rob was like we have all this money like what do you want to do with it <laughs> and I was really taken aback because I was like oh you're not gonna tell me what we should do and it was exciting that he just trusted his students to come up with their own ideas about how they wanted to do different projects and then to see it through. So I had been working a lot with my undocumented life. And so I was advocating let's build a partnership between what we're doing at UCLA and with my undocumented life. Um, so we worked on some blog post series together. And it was exciting that Rob was like, sounds good, do it, you know? And, um, you know, I think a lot of folks describe him as being a little bit hands off. Um, you know, he'll, he'll meet with me from time to time to give me this like big picture direction where I should be going next in the program. I think a lot of people come into a PhD program. And I've just noticed this with my friends that they hope that their advisor will be like this amazing mentor who's keeping track of not only what is happening with you academically with the program, but what's happening with you emotionally and how are you doing in school? And let me help you transition to this wild life of this program. And I see a lot of friends get disappointed because I think their advisors are mostly just interested in supporting students through the academic part. Um, I think it really depends on who your advisor is. I've heard different stories about different advisors. Um, so I really had to look for that more like day to day detailed guidance from other folks, which I'm really glad somebody told me that early on. Because once I did that, it, it just felt like I needed less from my advisor, and it just kind of meant that I could appreciate the opportunities he could give to me, and not feel like oh, but I need help <laughs> understanding just what classes should I sign up for, you know. And I found a lot of that advice from students who were a year or two or three ahead of me in my exact program, because they really knew about my program. And they were just such wonderful people and really willing to mentor students who were a few years behind them. So I would go to them for a lot of the more detailed questions about how do you apply for IRB for a research project and just all these different things. They were incredibly helpful. So I think I kind of was able to find mentors in different places. And then just with my advisor, be able to go to him for more big picture. Like, Do you like my dissertation topic kind of question? And then everything kind of flowed a little bit better. Yeah.
0: And I think that's kind of a part of you know, graduate school that you end up, no matter what, relying more on your peers um, than most of your advisors just because they have, um, everyone kind of has their own kind of unique place within your own journey of finishing the PhD and beyond. Um, You mentioned this before, but for any of our listeners who may not be familiar, so what is My Undocumented
3: Life? Oh, yes. So My Undocumented Life, uh, my good friend, she's now a professor at UC Irvine, which I'm I'm just stoked about. Uh, is Carolina Valdivia. And so I met her when she was a PhD student in the education school at Harvard. And she navigated higher ed herself as an undocumented student. And the original goal of the blog was just to give back to her community, just different resources she learned about in terms of scholarships or just anything that she thought would be helpful. And then it just kind of exploded. People fell in love with it. It's got like almost 2 million views now. And it's been exciting. So when I met her five or six years ago, oh my God, now it's been like six or seven years. she was telling me about her blog and I was just so excited about it so we became really close friends and I would just ask her like is there anything I can do that would be helpful so I started writing different blog posts and was able to get some grant money for her and so the blog um, it covers so many different topics now like there's a whole series on What does it mean to be undocumented and dating? And we would just commission folks to write their own blog posts about their experiences. So there's very personal aspects like that. There's how do you get access to healthcare? People have written about that. We had a whole series on navigating graduate school. And then one more recently on uh, what did it mean to folks to be undocumented and navigating the pandemic. So like one of my friends who was just graduating from college didn't have DACA. She wrote about like graduating from college, trying to find jobs in the context of the pandemic and like worrying about her family. Um, so folks wrote about all different kinds of things. And uh yeah and Caroline also does a lot of programming through the blog like just different events for people to meet each other and just really build community. So it's been a really special place um, to meet folks. And I think a lot of people describe how they really felt like they found community and felt less alone trying to navigate higher ed as an undocumented student by finding this job. Yeah,
2: I remember seeing it when I was at Sonoma State uh, 11, 10 years ago, I think, Um, because I was thinking of grad school and I remember running in like, finding her blog and reading about her story. And I was just like, there is hope, (laughs) there is hope. Um, And um, I guess one of the last, as we're like closing or coming to the end, um, I'm curious about what has your job search been like uh, thus far as you're about to graduate and have been on the job hunt and what has that process been like for you? Can you
3: provide some insight? Yeah. So, um, it's, you know, it's interesting because it feels like this PhD program in many ways has lasted forever. (laughs) It's been about six years. And so to transition into something else feels kind of overwhelming, a little intimidating. Um, but I mean, when I came into the PhD program, I felt very solid in knowing what I was passionate about. I would just tell people, oh, I wanna keep working on immigrant rights, LGBT rights, like youth activism. This was what I was really passionate about and that I would be happy to work on it from any kind of angle. Um, But the longer you're in the PhD program, the more you just feel this pressure that you gotta become a professor And it's really interesting because that pressure is actually not coming from any of my professors. They're the ones who are kind of realistic and saying, oh, there's not that many professor openings. It's also kind of hard to be a professor. You should consider all these other different paths. Um, But it's really kind of my peers who are the ones who almost all of them want to be professors. They're really excited about this path. So I think at some point I just started kind of drinking the kool-aid i guess and i was like i'm gonna be a professor too and now that i'm coming out of it i'm just doing a lot of soul searching and trying to remind myself what am i really excited about what do i really want to do and um so i I did apply to some professor and postdoc positions last fall um none of them have worked out so far i mean there's some that look like i might be advancing through the process so we'll see um but I am just trying to dream of what's, what are possibilities out there that I could do that maybe folks would be interested in hiring me now that I've had more years of experience and this degree, you know? And uh, so just, I've been learning about different programs here in LA. Like I always had the image that, I'm gonna go back to the East Coast, you know, cause of my grandparents and just, they're getting very elderly, they're 95 and 90. My other grandmother's ninety, so I just, in many ways, still hoped that I could spend some quality time with them. Um, but you know, the PhD program brings things you would never expect. I met my girlfriend, who we just got married last week, um, <laughs> and she's she's a big community organizer here in LA. She's lived in the same neighborhood for fifteen years, and she's very connected to her neighborhood and some folks in the neighborhood kind of raised her through her 20s and then what she was doing was raising kids they would come to her house every day after school and she's known them from when they were six years old to now they're 22 23 um so they're all so close and she didn't really want to leave LA and so I was like "Hmm, you know I never imagined staying here but a lot can happen in six years and I made some wonderful friends and I feel like I have a lot of community now here and I'm really close friends with the folks in the neighborhood now too so we're also trying to stay in LA I think at this point which really affects that academic job search you know so I'm just learning about different programs here in LA and trying to just try to have an open mindset around just exploring and seeing what will come next and try not to feel to. too much pressure to just grab the first opportunity, but really think about, what do I really want to do?
0: Yeah, and I hope that a lot of our listeners are also kind of feel some sort of comfort knowing that a lot of us still um, question or reflecting and always kind of assessing our own life and seeing if this is something that we want to do and that sometimes you know, within that reflection, we kind of figure out, okay, well, this path didn't work out, or I attempted, you know, I sent out all these applications, they weren't a good fit, and it's all about just kind of pivoting and just really figuring out, there's always going to be a program, a job, a position, a whatever, right, that is a better fit, it's just a matter of us just kind of reassessing um, what we truly want, and what we can uh, do within the next uh Few steps in our lives because some of these things are always temporary, so it's not always going to be uh, a forever thing. And it's very common for a lot of us to switch careers or think of other things that we can do outside of academia. That we don't always have to stick to the thing that we study, which you already kind of proved with your undergraduate degree, and now (laughs) moving forward. And now I think it's another step after this figuring out um, what other possibilities could be out there for you and. Always thinking about family. I think that's exciting for you to, you know, think about and see what other options there are. But thank you so much for, for joining us. And so for our closing, um, is there any last thoughts or words of advice <laughs> that you would want to leave our listeners with?
3: Yeah. Um something I love talking about that I'm really passionate about is just how do you take care of yourself through a PhD program? I think during my master's program at Harvard, I just was so excited to be surrounded by so many opportunities. I'm just such a yes girl. I'm like, if someone gives me an opportunity, I'm just like, yes. And so I just said yes to everything. And I became such a workaholic in my master's program and just wasn't taking care of myself. So when I came into the PhD program, I was already like, let me think about what it means to balance this program with a sense of wellness and so I just told myself this is a nine-to-five job I'm not going to work in the evenings I'm not going to work on the weekends and I just made that decision pretty firmly and then when I came into the program I was just like shocked by how much my peers didn't do that and didn't appreciate me for saying that that's what I'm doing like I would have co-workers who would be like okay let's send each other the paper on Friday night and then meet on Sunday afternoon to discuss it And there was no deadline, there was no need for things to be, uh, for us to be working on over the weekend, so I was just really unapologetic, and I was like, I don't work on the weekends, Um, can we meet on Monday instead? And they'd get upset, be like, what do you mean you don't work on weekends? Everybody works on weekends, and so I think I just had a little, like, personal activist project of just being really unapologetic, of like, yeah, I take time off, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the beach on Sunday, and I'm gonna relax, (laughs) Um, and I would just say like, you know, the more you let your mind kind of relax, the, the better work you'll be able to come back and do when you come back to it. Um, so that's something I cared about. And I feel like a lot of folks feel like there's this culture in academia where the more you say you're burnt out and the more you say you work all the time it means you're doing better work. But I think the more that we can push against that, the more it's like, no, the more you take care of yourself, the more that you can do better work is something that I really care about that I hope more and more young people can kind of change that culture even though it's hard.
0: And research supports that. so that's the interesting <laughs> thing right is that the more we take breaks, the more we have a balanced uh, wholesome life, also like joy in it, the the better um, our quality of life is and the better we just navigate work we're school so it's always nice to not have work as an identity <laughs> you know like as your sole identity it's just a part of you and uh the thing that you do well thank you so much uh rachel for joining us it was uh, really exciting to to get to know you more and hope our listeners took um, a lot of away from Your experience, you know, navigating and finishing now your PhD. So congratulations on
3: (laughs) Dr. Rachel Freeman. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. This has been so wonderful.
0: This week's business shout out goes to Olive Collection. Olive Collection carries specifically curated Korean beauty products that are delivered with confidence, love, and care. Based in Orange County, California, founder Christina Eam opened this collection dedicated to all her favorite beauty products in the hopes that others would also benefit from their successful effects. If you're like me, my personal favorite hobby is finding great skincare products, and I was excited when I came across Olive Collection. I've ordered several times from Christina's shop, and I haven't been disappointed. Check out her TikTok at kbeautymom if you'd like to learn more about the products Olive Collection has. And uh, the links to her website and her TikTok will be found in the episode show notes, so definitely check them out and support.
1: For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC, business, conference, and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at codeswitchers and on Twitter at xcodeswitchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or cash app us at Chicana code Switchers, and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you. And don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.